A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for your support on Patreon. Vidar Stephenson. Stephenson was a visionary commander of the artillery and was present during the Battle of Luther in 1626. Unfortunately, he was blown to smithereens by an errant shell, but at least he had a good run. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, then head on over to Patreon. More about that later, but for now, enjoy episode 36 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all to the Thirty Years' War. Last time we saw the Hague Alliance effectively crumble to pieces after a series of defeats of its major military actors and the deaths of leading lights of the anti-Habsburg camp, Ernst of Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick. King Christian IV of Denmark was defeated in the Battle of Luther in August 1626 and he was in full retreat back to Denmark's Jutland Peninsula so he was in no position to carry the burden of the war any longer. And in fact, with the English, French and Dutch all occupied in turn, he was on his own. Contrary to the hopes of Frederick V and the fears of Emperor Ferdinand, the Hague Alliance had misfired catastrophically. The King of Denmark, although he was certainly down, was not yet out. Other forces remained in play, and while Wallenstein returned to Vienna to confirm his status and create the army which would render his name infamous, feeders had been sent out which had the best prospects yet of bringing the empire to peace. How these initiatives panned out depended now more than ever on the triumphant emperor and, as we have become aware, Emperor Ferdinand II was not a gracious winner. Without any further ado then, I will now take you all to 1626. The dispossessed Elector Palatine Frederick V greeted the news of Christian IV's defeat with sombre self-reflection and a declaration of his faith in the eventual triumph of his good cause. Admitting wrongdoing was impossible on Frederick's part, having come so far playing the same song of the Emperor's unconstitutional behaviour and the Habsburg family's pretensions to European domination through their oppressive Jesuits. If capitulation was also impossible, then it remained for Frederick to hold out and justify this resilience in turn. He attempted to bolster the shattered spirits of the King of Denmark by writing the following to King Christian in early September 1626, shortly after the Battle of Luther had happened. Frederick wrote, 
Although God, the most high prince of war, often lets dark clouds cover his own, he also still tends to them finally, gladdening them once again with the loving rays of his sun, and release the weather of his wrath over the enemies of his church and the oppressors of common liberty, just as when you suppose you will either be ruined, or at least will not continue, and you must recognise that you can do no more than what is allowed you from on high, as such things already in many places express the good hope that the Almighty will perhaps compensate your Highness for the loss suffered to his honour, and for the consolation of so many hard-oppressed souls. For thus, then, we pray to him with all our heart. Evidently, Frederick maintained a belief in a warrior god, a belief he reinforced in his own personal writings when he sought to reconcile his own defeats, saying, One must let time run its course, unless the Lord God may supply guidance and means for this purpose, for the good hope that he may not allow the common Protestant cause and those liberties, having been obtained at such great costs, to be oppressed. If Frederick feared the spectacle of oppression in the Holy Roman Empire, then he was right to fear. Emperor Ferdinand did not view the conclusion of the campaigning season as the end of Count Tilly's objectives, nor would Wallenstein be now retired, simply because no enemy army existed in the field. Ernst of Mansfeld was gone, Christian of Brunswick was gone, Christian IV of Denmark was in headlong retreat up the Jutland Peninsula. If he genuinely desired peace the emperor could have acquired it. Like Frederick, the emperor wanted peace on his own conditions, and he was inflexible on these conditions, just as Frederick would not be moved on his. Since compromise was equated with weakness, or worse, an admission of wrongdoing, it was impossible in late 1626 for either side to contemplate a negotiated settlement unless the full extent of their demands was accepted. Both men were as bad as the other in this regard, The difference was that Ferdinand, on the winning side, quite reasonably expected Frederick to admit defeat and thus be more amenable to giving at the peace table. The emperor and the elector did in fact engage in limited peace overtures, and since 1625, the Duke of Lorraine and of Württemberg had voiced their opinion to the effect that it was high time Frederick submitted and saved Germany from further destruction. Frederick would only submit to his emperor if Ferdinand fully and unconditionally reinstated him in the Palatinate. This, of course, the Emperor could not do, because he was actively using Frederick's lands to pay off his own debts. Thus, the only way Frederick could rule the Upper Palatinate, then occupied by Bavaria, or the Lower Palatinate, then occupied by Bavaria and the Spanish, would be through some kind of cash indemnity, which would absolve Ferdinand of his debts to Maximilian of Bavaria, and at the same time, satisfy the Spanish. From Madrid, peace overtures to London had been forwarded, and it seemed at least possible that Spain would be willing to end its war with England and use the Palatinate as the prize to lure King Charles to the peace table. But King Charles could not afford to be drawn, so long as the restitution was bound to come with unsavoury terms and conditions which would compromise his bargaining power with Parliament. And so long as Parliament maintained such a vehement dislike of the Duke of Buckingham, and so long as Charles refused to dismiss that Duke, it was unlikely that Parliament would hear their King's proposals in any case. The Spanish would not relinquish the Rhine Palatinate without good reason, since it had proved a boon to their strategic interests in their war with the Dutch. With the war proceeding well in the Netherlands, King Philip IV was willing to use the Palatinate to buy off Britain and open up trade between the two nations again but he wouldn't give it away without some incentive. 
Frederick's ties to Britain, once considered so valuable, had thus complicated matters considerably. It was rumoured, after the Battle of Luther in August 1626, that a truce would be arranged between the parties, but Frederick advised his ambassador in London not to agree to any such proposals for a truce based solely on promises from either side. At this point in his life, having received so many successive disappointments, Frederick needed deeds rather than words. He couldn't afford to trust the promises of the Spanish or Austrian Habsburgs, especially when they stood to gain so much from his standing down and submission. If Frederick retired at this point, the Habsburgs would have been in a position of unquestioned supremacy in the Empire and in Europe, and with the Spanish road open, the traditional rivals distracted, and the Dutch war going in Spain's favour, there seemed no reason to imagine this power reducing. Who was there to enforce any terms on the Emperor, or to hold him to account? So long as the two armies of Tilly and Wallenstein were there in the field, the Emperor would be able to do as he liked. Considering the powers which both of these commanders held, it is somewhat surprising to see Wallenstein writing to the Emperor on the subject of a lasting peace, even before the Battle of Luther had taken place. He did this in June 1626. Interestingly, Wallenstein's motives for doing so were based on the fear that if Ferdinand did not quit while he was ahead, stopping the war would be impossible in the near future. One could only triumph so many times before he incurred the united wrath of all his wronged opponents. Wallenstein, as a commander but also a landowner of great significance, was also concerned to protect his interests. As Wallenstein wrote, I hereby obediently enclose to your Imperial Majesty what has been communicated with General Count Tilly. You will graciously see from this what position the enemy is in. My humble opinion in this would be that it would be currently best and bring more advantage and higher reputation if your Imperial Majesty negotiated peace with them, because the enemy will get more help from various quarters and his forces will greatly increase, so that he will perhaps not accept later what he would more easily be persuaded to agree to now and this evil might not be stopped later. This, of course, was a very prophetic warning, and one which the Emperor failed to heed. Certainly after the victory at Luther, Wallenstein quieted down a bit about a negotiated settlement, and he focused instead on the task of increasing his army's size to truly massive proportions. Over the autumn of 1626, Wallenstein was vocal about his need for more monetary support from the Emperor. It seemed that not even a private citizen of his immense means could entain an army indefinitely. Unfortunately for Wallenstein, though, and this was a lesson he was beginning to learn, the Emperor was in no position to provide any money for his soldiers, and requests to levy a new tax in the hereditary lands was met with protest in Bohemia and Moravia. Little wonder that Wallenstein exclaimed in frustration by late 1626, It is sufficient for the Emperor that I have provided him with an army the likes of which no one has had before, and for which he is still not laid out a single farthing. It is not possible to do with an unpaid army what a paid one will do. Wallenstein was also aggravated by the legion of armchair generals back in Vienna who took every opportunity to criticise him and openly scrutinise his tactics. With his victory at Dessau Bridge in April 1626, outshone by Count Tilly's defeat of the Danish king at Luther a few months later, Wallenstein found that 
Even as he wintered in his Prague palace, then under construction, his lines of credit were close to exhaustion, his health was beginning to fail, and a wave of opinion was forming against him in Vienna. All three of these problems followed Wallenstein for the rest of his life, but regardless of his objections and personal problems, the Duke of Friedland, as he was now called, knew he had a job to do, and he travelled to Vienna in spring 1627 to arrange a new campaign. After enduring for many months the burden of isolated command, Wallenstein fell ill almost as soon as he began his journey, and he didn't meet with the Emperor or the Emperor's people until May. On the 23rd of May 1627, after a brief audience with the Emperor, Wallenstein left Vienna never to return. The journey had taken a lot out of him, and given him few causes for optimism, but problems further afield demanded his attention. Contrary to expectations, by spring 1627, King Christian of Denmark had raised an army of 30,000 men in Holstein, which was too large for Count Tilly to reckon with alone. It was time for Wallenstein to confront the Danish threat head-on. Perhaps by doing so, total victory, payment of his debts and the silencing of his critics would follow. Jeff Mortimer, Wallenstein's unofficial biographer, described Wallenstein's mindset as well as his plan for the new campaigning season, writing... Despite his illnesses and frustrations, Wallenstein prepared thoroughly for the campaign of 1627. Central to his planning was to ensure that, when he eventually confronted Christian, he would have the superior force at his disposal, while still having enough troops to deploy against threats elsewhere. Hence, he set out to build his army up into the largest early modern Europe had thus seen, of the order of 100,000 men in total. His growing reputation also enabled him to attract outstanding officers to strengthen his higher levels of command. The threats elsewhere which Wallenstein feared were found in Transylvania and Silesia. In both cases, the significant leaders of the forces there, Bethlen Gabor and Ernst of Mansfeld respectively, had either retired or died. But Wallenstein could not guarantee that Mansfeld's headless army would not return with plunder on its mind, or that the Prince of Transylvania's military career was in fact over. Exhausted and prematurely aged by years in the saddle, Bethlen Gabor died in November 1629, having just reached his 50th birthday, but the campaign of 1626 was destined to be his last. Of course, Wallenstein didn't know that Bethlen Gabor's last shot had been fired, so he believed he needed forces for these potential threats. He also needed soldiers on hand to deal with another, potentially catastrophic intervention, that by the King of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus. After making some noise about the desire to intervene in 1625, Gustavus had refrained from doing so in the end, and chose to make war against his Polish cousin instead. The resumption of that long-simmering conflict netted the Swedish king some incredible successes, including much of the Baltic states' lucrative ports. Harnessing the power of these ports and investing the income from their tolls in military upgrades and recruitment, Gustavus seemed to have found the key to success in his war with the Polish king. For Wallenstein, the news of Gustavus's success was grave indeed, since it suggested that an arranged peace would soon be in the offing, and when that occurred, the Swedish king would be free to intervene in the German war. If Sweden intervened before Denmark could be decisively defeated, then the Habsburgs would face the apocalyptic prospect of war with all of Scandinavia. In Wallenstein's view, war with Sweden was nigh on inevitable, 
but to delay the entry of her king into the conflict, he authorised the supplementation of the Polish army with some units from his hulking force. This move, although it was strategically clever, would in fact be used by the Swedish king as one of his casus belli's for war with the emperor in 1630. But in 1627, Wallenstein was forced to think in more immediate terms. The danger of a Swedish intervention, while the king of Denmark maintained 30,000 men, was obvious, and it made the need to eject King Christian from the war as soon as possible all the more urgent. Due to Wallenstein's adventure to Vienna and Christian's need to repair and recruit his forces for a new campaign, the campaigning season of 1627 started quite late, in mid-July, in spite of the great issues at stake. Before the campaigning began in earnest, though, the dispossessed Elector Palatine made use of another opportunity to achieve peace at the negotiating table. The latest conference took place over July 1627 and was hosted in the town of Colmar in Alsace. It was the fruits of the anxious labours of that same Duke of Alsace and the Duke of Württemberg who had together urged Frederick to the peace table, but to no avail. Here at Colmar they hosted representatives from Frederick and the Emperor in what had been billed as a new initiative for an empire-wide peace. Shortly after opening, though, it became apparent that this conference would fail to achieve peace just like the others. Despite its ill fate, the Kalmar Conference was significant because in this instance, Frederick went further than he ever had before. His representatives made it known that he would renounce his claims on Bohemia, would ask for no indemnity from the Emperor in spite of the ruined state of his Palatinate, that he would swear fealty to Ferdinand so long as this did not humiliate his electoral dignity, and that, most interestingly, he was willing to share the electoral Palatine title with Maximilian of Bavaria so long as it lasted only until Maximilian's death. On the other hand, Frederick's agents refused to accept the Emperor's demand of religious toleration for Catholics in his lands. This would, after all, have violated the terms of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg. As the Emperor had made clear on several occasions previously, though, since Calvinism was not recognised by the Augsburg settlement, its privileges did not apply to the Calvinist elector. This narrow-minded view was unfortunate, and also tricky to rationally apply, since Frederick was not the only Calvinist elector. George William of Brandenburg also subscribed to that creed. In addition, Frederick's refusal to countenance any indemnity for the emperor came from a mood of necessity as much as defiance. Frederick's lands had been ravaged and pillaged by the invading Bavarians and Spanish, with the former in particular exacting extensive contributions as recompense for the emperor's debt to Maximilian. Frederick had given as much ground as he possibly Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. He could without compromising his honour and his representatives were vocal in their insistence that the Palatinate must be restored unconditionally. One contemporary called the negotiations an inextricable labyrinth and expressed his fears that unless some common ground was established between the two sides, a proper peace would not be reached at Colmar. What Colmar required was a mediator more powerful and effective than the Dukes of Alsace and Württemberg. Unfortunately for the peace of Europe, the usual suspects in France, Britain and the Netherlands were all occupied, and neither side would have trusted the papacy to remain impartial in any case. Once it became obvious that no agreement would be reached, Frederick consoled himself in his anger by pronouncing loudly that he accepted no responsibility for the failure. He had never been as agreeable or flexible as he had been at Colmar, and yet the emperor had refused to countenance even the smallest of compromises. Like Frederick, the emperor evidently believed that through war he could gain better terms. Unlike Frederick, though, Ferdinand was not willing to consider anything but the unconditional surrender of his foe and the complete supplication of the Palatine family to his will. This was not just playing hard to get. It was tantamount to a deliberate torpedoing of the peace negotiations before they'd even had a chance to make progress. Ferdinand's intransigence can be explained not only by his faith in the strength of Wallenstein's swollen force, but also in the due processes of the empire, which were sure to work in his favour. An electoral diet was due to take place at Mulhausen in October 1627, whereupon the transfer of Frederick's titles were to be officially confirmed and the emperor's uncompromising conditions for Frederick's surrender were to be given the blessing by all the empire's potentates, including, bitterly enough for Frederick, the Calvinist George William of Brandenburg. Knowledge of this looming diet had put some urgency into the Palatine negotiators at Colmar, but because the emperor knew of its likely decisions, he chose to string Frederick along at the July meeting rather than commit to anything. Thus, for Frederick, the tough pill to swallow of the failed Kalmar conference was accompanied in quick succession by the choking unfairness of the Mulhausen Diet. At Mulhausen, Frederick's worst fears were confirmed, as were the Emperor's requests. By this point in October 1627, Wallenstein's large army had begun to tell on the nerves of those assembled. On the surface, the Emperor made demands which had been tacitly agreed to before by his electoral subordinates, but in secret, commitments had been made with Maximilian of Bavaria to relinquish the electoral title of the Palatinate to him and his descendants. This would permanently exclude Frederick and his family from the Palatinate succession. 
Even Ferdinand knew that this was a bridge too far, and he kept it secret from the two Protestant electors as a result. By February 1628, though, Frederick would learn that the Upper Palatinate had been granted to Maximilian for life, and that it had essentially been stripped away from his inheritance. These blows in succession were deeply felt, but worse was to come for the exiled ex-elector. We're going to continue with the narrative of what happened next with Christian IV's campaigns, but before we do so, I'd like to remind you of a little factoid that you may or may not be aware of. Poland is Not Yet Lost is a series that is running concurrently to the Thirty Years' War, and the story is really heating up at the moment. We've just covered the point where Frederick the Great makes a bid for German supremacy and attacks and invades Silesia. Opposing him is the poor Empress Maria Theresa, and that's about it. Britain also tries to get involved, but basically a big war starts in the year 1740 over the issue of the Austrian succession. It's called the War of the Austrian Succession, but really it's more about who would become Holy Roman Emperor and who would be dominant in Germany. I know that's the 1740s, so it's quite far ahead of what we're talking about here in the 1620s, but the same actors, which are important in our narrative in the Thirty Years' War, are very much important and active in the 1740s too. It's all connected, you might say. It's also very, very fascinating. We get to talk about all sorts of really interesting characters, everyone from Frederick the Great himself, to the developing situation in Britain, where the more traditional system of prime ministers, that kind of thing, was beginning to develop. So it's an era of the greats, but it's also an era where poor old Poland doesn't look so great anymore, so we'll be covering that story too. Poland is Not Yet Lost has really been a joy to research and present to you guys, and it's received some really good feedback. It's 35 episodes in, so if you were to sign up now for a fiver a month, you would get all of those 35 episodes and the ones that are to come, plus pretty much everything else we've done in the Patreon feed too. In other words, if you like your 30 Years' War and you like When Diplomacy Fails, first of all, thank you very much. It's very flattering to hear that you do. But if you'd like more from me, then head on over to Patreon where you can get all the content your heart desires. It is because of my lovely patrons that I'm able to do this show while also doing a PhD full-time. It's not an easy balancing act, trust me, but it's one that I relish and that I really I really am very grateful for the opportunity for, because without you guys, none of this would be possible. And I know that that's a cliche, but it's true. If you'd like to contribute towards this great historical adventure, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is the place you should go, or click on the link in the description below. Thanks for putting up with such things, but for now, let's go back to Christian's campaigns. The continued campaigns of Christian IV of Denmark are largely forgotten by the histories, and with good reason. Nothing of consequence was achieved after the Battle of Luther, and although his impressive army took to the field in summer 1627 with much apparent promise, thanks to the failed promises of Denmark's allies, this army was unpaid and demoralised, and Christian knew he would not be able to rely for very long on it. His decision to return to Holstein and draw what he could from his personal dukedom was a good idea on paper, especially as the Danish Chancery refused to provide him with funds for a new campaign. Their king, having launched his war as the Duke of Holstein and marched as the Lower Saxon Circle's president, would lose his personal war from this position 
if they had anything to say about it. Unfortunately for Christian, his allies abroad were not the only ones to fail him. He happened to host several exiles in his army, and one of these was Count Thurn, the figure who had been so instrumental in the defenestration of Prague almost a decade before. Thurn was a passionate rabble-rouser, but he was a useless soldier, and his task of defending the Elbe River was abandoned, as Thurn determined to instead retreat further northwards. With the Elbe crossing abandoned, the mission of defeating the Danish king would be far easier for Tilly and Wallenstein. By September 1627, the two commanders had arrived in Holstein and overran Christian's personal holdings within two weeks, exacting lucrative contributions as they did so. Christian's response was to retreat further up the peninsula, but any hopes that his subjects would repel the imperialists were in vain, as both Danish and German peasants actually fought against the king's men during the retreat, in anger and despair at the terrible chasm into which he had thrown them. As Tilly and Wallenstein encountered successive Danish fortresses throughout Holstein, the garrisons determined to surrender rather than fight. Many had not been paid, and since the bulk of Christian's army was made up of Germans anyway, a great number joined the ranks of the invader in search of better pay and more reliable contracts. Christian's army effectively dissolved as he retreated further northwards. By the 28th of September, the main Danish camp had been compromised, and by the 16th of October, the last fortress guarding the entrance to the peninsula surrendered. The road was now open for a massive imperialist invasion of the Danish heartland. Utterly shattered, the Danish king retreated to his inaccessible islands through the harnessing of his kingdom's final remaining asset, its navy, and he waited in Copenhagen to weather whatever storm may come, be it invasion or, he hoped, a favourable peace. 1627, then, spelled doom for the Danish king's resolve. The task of fielding his armies had been rendered impossible by the silence which greeted Danish requests to its allies. The Hague Alliance just seemed, in the end, unwilling, or unable, to fulfil their end of the bargain and provide the promised subsidies. Without these subsidies, Denmark was forced to face the Habsburg Colossus alone. This would have been an unwinnable prospect, even without Wallenstein's army of 100,000 men dominating the field, crowding his fortresses and choking his freedom of manoeuvre. Had King Christian appreciated exactly how far Wallenstein had been instructed to go, he might have suffered a breakdown. Wallenstein and Tilly had met with stunning success, and their enormous army dwarfed any that their rivals could match. But their mission did not cease with the defeat and expulsion of the Danish king from northern Germany. Instead, Wallenstein was encouraged to pursue a line intimated earlier by the Spanish, the so-called Baltic design, which would provide the Habsburgs with a secure base in the Baltic, from which all their enemies could be defeated in detail. The scheme excited the Spanish, because in Madrid, Count Olivares envisioned it as the best way to defeat the Dutch and surround them on all fronts. The plan had also appealed to Wallenstein because it would hamper the Swedish king's activities and enable the emperor to inflict a decisive defeat on King Christian, perhaps through a naval landing near Copenhagen. Wallenstein aimed to make this Habsburg dream a reality by harnessing the power of the Hanseatic League, who, we'll recall, had been approached by the Habsburgs in 1625 with a similar offer, but had turned it down. Now, at the height of their powers, the proposal was offered again, 
and Wallenstein concocted a series of new campaigns to make further Habsburg aggrandizement possible in 1628, while the Hanseatic League received greater incentives to join. As we will discover shortly, the Baltic design was a bridge too far for the Habsburgs, but for now it suffices to note the striking correspondence which Wallenstein undertook to write in the name of this scheme. In October 1627, as Holstein was overrun by imperial troops, Wallenstein penned a letter to King Sigismund of Poland, who as we learned was supplied with some contingents from Wallenstein's army earlier in the year to keep the Polish-Swedish war in motion. Wallenstein attempted to build upon this relationship by approaching the Polish king about the Baltic design. By 1627, although Poland had lost the lucrative Baltic ports to Sweden, Poland still possessed considerable assets in Pomerania and Prussia and extensive economic interests in the Baltic, most significantly in the port of Danzig, the Commonwealth's wealthiest and most populous city. Thus, Wallenstein's approaches sought to unify the Holy Roman Emperor with his Polish brother-in-law in this design. He would appeal to Sigismund's self-interest by detailing the benefits to Poland should the king join in with it. The correspondence is worth recounting, not merely for what it says about the interconnected nature of the Thirty Years' War, even at this relatively early stage, but also for what it says about the Polish king's insatiable ambitions. Wallenstein began with a letter on the 28th of October 1627, in which he wrote, We report to your majesty, the king of Poland, that we are already busy collecting a large fleet to pursue those who disturb Christianity. We hope that our lord will, as till today, support this just cause, now that your majesty is willing to join your ships to ours and bring them to a safe port. Therefore we report that we have captured the town of Wismar. This is the foremost harbour in the Baltic Sea, so that your majesty can now send them there in better security. Had Wallenstein successfully orchestrated a scheme whereby Polish ships would be lent to the Habsburgs? As it happened, King Sigismund required little convincing. He was already on board, but he had far more in mind than the mere pooling of naval power. What he envisioned was the total destruction of their enemies and the expansion of the war into all theatres. King Sigismund of Poland responded to Wallenstein's letter on the 10th of November to say that We have received word that your grace, thanks to divine grace and support, has achieved a remarkable victory over his majesty, the emperor's enemy, the king of Denmark, in the principality of Holstein. This is not only pleasant and agreeable to us, but most welcome. We did not want to neglect congratulating your grace on such a happy success and to thank the almighty and to pray that he will graciously permit your grace to prosper in such a work that is most necessary to our Catholic religion and to the due extirpation of all the most damaging enemies. We also do not want to admit telling your grace that certain reports have arrived that Denmark is currently seeking a peace with his majesty the emperor and eagerly wants this. However, this is not pleasant to us, since such peace negotiations will not only do more harm than good to his majesty the emperor and the king of Spain, but also to ourselves. We may ask, why would the emperor's peace with the Danish king disadvantage the king of Poland, who wasn't even at war with Denmark? Well, Sigismund continued to enlighten Wallenstein on this. Because, with God's help, victory is in his majesty and your grace's hands, and because the enemy population is greatly afraid, by continuing the campaign, one can easily obtain the sound and other places, and so conquer the entire kingdom of Denmark, 
with such a powerful fleet. Furthermore, this will also help the King of Spain be more powerful than his enemies, and so much more easily and quickly provide help and assistance to the King of Spain, from whom we have already had some consolation that we might recover our Kingdom of Sweden. Because matters can be judged by your Grace's customary discretion, we entrust them to your Grace with due affected, and ask your advice how assistance against Sweden could be sought from His Majesty the Emperor in the matter of the consolation that we have received from the King of Spain, so that once this has been received, Sweden can also be attacked from this side. The implications for what the King of Poland was suggesting here were nothing short of breathtaking. First, he advised Wallenstein not to make peace, but to use the fleet acquired from this Baltic design to actually conquer Denmark and, presumably, depose its king. Second, Sigismund inquired about promises made by the King of Spain about Sigismund's recovery of Sweden, and he insisted that if the Emperor would also grant these guarantees and declare against Gustavus Adolphus, then Sweden would be attacked and destroyed from all sides, and Sigismund would be able to take back what was rightfully his, the Swedish crown which his uncle had stolen from him, and which his cousin Gustavus now kept warm. Contrary to Sigismund's striking plan, though, the Emperor was in no position to declare against the Swedes, and Wallenstein likely interpreted these offers as nothing more than an attempt by Sigismund to entangle the Habsburgs in his unsuccessful war against Gustavus Adolphus, without any tangible benefit to their position. Indeed, Sigismund offered no practical guarantees or support of his own through this correspondence. He offered neither to declare war on the Dutch, nor to declare war on the Danes. King Sigismund's activities had not crossed the path of Wallenstein or of the Emperor for the final time though, and in spite of his apparent selfishness, the key role that Poland played in keeping Sweden busy was recognised by Wallenstein as well as the French, with incredible results later in the war. For now, the Swedish-Polish War remained an isolated if distantly related conflict to that waged in the Emperor's name, but Wallenstein was convinced it could not remain so indefinitely. In the next episode, then, we'll examine how the Emperor sought to make the most of his incredible supremacy. With Wallenstein's hulking army in the field and no enemy to meet him, it was perhaps inevitable that Ferdinand would use the opportunity to achieve his ultimate goal. The restoration of the balance, the empowering of the Catholic Church, the ambition of the Jesuits. So long as he remained supreme, Emperor Ferdinand was eager to gain all that he could from his privileged position. In the process, though, the Emperor became one of history's greatest examples of a victim of his own success. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends, but until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 36 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening to this show and for supporting it in the usual places. You're the best, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.